Hello, my name is Vikas Shah and welcome to the Business in a Digital Age podcast. This podcast from Shoesmiths features interviews with changemakers, mold breakers, future leaders and other leading figures who show us what matters in the digital age. They share key insights and talk about what you can do to thrive in the years ahead. We explore what makes our guests tick and what they think will most transform our lives in the next few years and importantly, what you can do about it. Today's guest is Adam Wagner. Susanna Reid from TV's Good Morning Britain calls him the barrister who kept the legal receipts. Put simply, Adam knows more about the COVID regulations which upended our lives from March 2020 than probably anybody else in the country. During the pandemic, he acted for the Good Law Project's challenge to the Metropolitan Police's refusal to investigate the Downing Street parties and two key judicial reviews of the hotel quarantine system. He regularly acts in politically sensitive public inquiries and inquests. Adam is also a passionate advocate, educator and writer on human rights and can be heard regularly on TV and radio. He writes for publications like The New Statesman and Prospect. And this is just a flavor of Adam's achievements, including being someone who's simply fascinating to chat with Chamber and Partners lords Adam as first-rate intelligence and a highly personable manner. We spoke to Adam back in March, and today I'm really, really happy to share our conversation with you. Adam, welcome. I really appreciate you making the time to join us because I know you'll be you'll be asked to do so many of these things. So I really appreciate it. And as a bit of a starter, kind of in your book. You know, I love that phrase where you say you, know, you kept the receipts because it's so important to do that for, for, for transparency. And But one thing that really occurred to me is why do you think it was that you were kind of the chief receipt keeper and no one else seemed to do what ostensibly seemed to be a very logical and sensible thing we ought to have been doing? Thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's um, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm still a bit mystified by it, to be honest. Um, my best answer uh, is that I, I think of myself as a bit like the, the, the tortoise in the tortoise and the hare story, is that at, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, when we had these really strange new laws that were by these statutory instruments that were keeping everybody from yeah. visiting their, you know, seeing their loved ones and working and doing all the basic things that humans do, um, uh, lawyers were very interested in them. But, you know, by statutory instrument number 108, two years later, um, other lawyers had gone back to doing other law, um, and I was the only one who was sat, you know, with my laptop at midnight on a Sunday evening, actually reading the new regulations. So, um, and 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 I think, you know, on a more seriously, as as the pandemic was progressing, um, and I I was keeping a spreadsheet of of the regulations, and um, things started to happen where it was necessary to look, look back at what happened at a particular period, and I think yeah. it was this sort of big psychological impetus to to put things behind us and just look 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 ahead at the next few hours and dates um just to get through it and i realized that um in actual fact that that spreadsheet weirdly was the only place you could find out where you know which regulation was in place at a particular time whether you know you came and came to the fore in the down downing street parties issue um because you really needs needed to know but at that, at that point i realized that i was the I was the the receipt keeper, um, and that's ultimately why I, why I wrote the book. And 
in terms of those laws being created, because, you know, so for me as a kind of lay member in this conversation, as a, as a non-lawyer, um, I, you know, as, as a member of a kind of, if you like, civil society who's in the, in the non-legal profession, the COVID lockdowns came in and a lot of us actually said, well, you know, that, that feels kind of sensible. And it's only really in retrospect that we see the amount of legal change that happened in terms of the speed that laws were created and acted, the number of laws that therefore came through. And I wonder, I wonder what your kind of, I, I guess, high level view is on that. The, you know, how did COVID change the speed at which laws are created and enacted? And do you think that the lack of general understanding of that has changed the balance of power, let's say? I think that it was really a, you know, unprecedented time. Um, in terms of the way law was used, it was unprecedented for lots of reasons, and and the book isn't really isn't saying that there was that none of these laws were justified. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really take a strong view on on that. I think that that that, that ha- it's a much bigger question that will be looked at for years to come, and and you know the whole world has to look at that. It's not just the UK that had these that had these rules. It's pretty much the whole world to differing levels, um, and and ultimately COVID was a really dangerous virus, killed hundreds of thousands of people. So we can't. The idea that 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 was sort of unjustified, uh, I think, is wrong. But in terms of the way laws were made, I'm just kind of startled. I remain startled by the fact that we went from a country where laws are made by Parliament, um, by you know quite complicated processes of scrutiny, yeah. to a country where that laws were being made by Matt Hancock signing his name on the end of a piece of paper. Um, you know, and if you read his book, you know, there's a story about how. He he was working at one point in his treehouse in the back of his garden. He set up a little printer there, and he said his printer broke, and he couldn't print the law, and therefore he couldn't sign the law. And because he couldn't sign the law, they couldn't bring in the law. Um, and and I think that just goes to show the sort of the strangeness and yeah, s- slight absurdity, but also the the democratic risk, which is what the book's about, really, of of of, of lawmaking like that. And do you think? So now that we are, let's say, because I want to come to kind of technology in a moment, but now that we are in inverted commas out of the COVID era, though, even with poor jabs and the best one of the world, I still had it a couple of weeks ago, which wasn't fun. But even though we're now out of, let's say, the emergency part of the COVID era, how do we now introduce back in those relevant safeguards? You know, how do we move that 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 weight back to where it ought to be in terms of democratic process? Because it feels as if that particular genie is now somewhat out of the bottle. It is, and and there are certain hangovers from the pandemic, which I mean, I think actually that that there was a sort of it's a bit like Zoom, you know, Zoom Zoom was coming anyway, um, Teams was coming anyway, but the 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 pandemic accelerates. It was an accelerant, um, if you think about technology, and and from a from a democracy is no different. It's a democratic culture can be turbocharged positively or negatively. And I think that there was a negative charge in the pandemic that there was this idea that you can just you can just basically give power to a group of a small group of individuals and say get on with it and we'll just listen to what you say and we'll do it. And I think there's a huge there's that that is not a new thing. You know, societies have autocratic societies have been much more common in human history than democracies yeah, yeah. because it's a pretty natural um, natural way of running things. And I'm, I think it's the wrong way of running things, but especially in emergencies it's quite a natural way of running things so i think that we it, it, this theme of 
government by you know a lawmaking by statutory instrument by bypassing parliament um was already there before the pandemic don't forget boris johnson tried to shut down the parliament for five weeks just before the pandemic started to avoid a, a brexit vote so yeah. you know that's a you can't get much more, more anti-democratic than that um and and, and post-pandemic i think I, I think really we need to in in lots of for lots of reasons we need to back and and understand what is valuable about democracy and why it's important and not yeah. not just go through the motions not just have it as a sort of you know yes of course we have to be democratic but you know you hear that a, a lot um we have to really see that democracy is 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 a is a, is very unusual it's very hard for and it's and it's like a precious jewel we have to protect it and this this, this is where i've always been interested into how technology is going to play a role in this because there's one camp where you could quite rightly say that you know sunlight disinfects and technology provides that through transparency and so on but then the other side would show that actually technology allows governments to kind of interfere and listen and monitor and control and influence in many many different ways which they perhaps couldn't so the same suite of incredible tools can both be extremely beneficial and extremely harmful to democratic process and engagement. And I wonder kind of what you've witnessed on that, because, you know, we saw that in the pandemic with, you know, monitoring your phones and all these other things and disinformation, blah, blah, blah. But I I'm still really struggling to figure out whether I should be bullish or not on technology as it relates to democracy. Um. I mean, it's they're huge questions, and 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 I, I'm I'm I've always been pretty optimistic about technology because I'm I'm a pretty techie person, and I and I've always, you know, I remember when I was playing, um, you know, when I was playing video games when I was yeah. eight or nine years old. I remember all the adults saying, video games are going to basically end civilization and 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 children, um, yeah, and you know, and I sit now playing with my with my son. On the same video games or the updated versions, and I, and I, I can't help noticing that video games are now just part of the culture, not seen as yeah. a threat. And I think there's lots of, um, I, I I think that we're always frightened of new technologies, and new technologies are always dangerous because they can be exploited to um, for, for for bad actors. Basically, you know, if you look at the way the Nazis use radio, for example, um, as a propaganda tool. It's, it was, you know, Goebbels is a genius. He's a total genius, and unfortunately, he was a, he was a genius for the for the bad guys. Um, and that's it, it's it's like I think the responsibility of civilization is not to prevent technology; it's to like harness it and to and to control it. But but also like in a, in a way to learn that you can't control it. Yeah. <laughs> that that that's the thing. You can't like it, it's the idea that you can just sort of like with radio or TV or the internet or social media, the idea that you can just sort of somehow um, big control, like regulate it yes. as out out of danger, I think is wrong. I th I, I suspect, um, and, and I am a lawyer, I'm not a technology expert, but I suspect that where the ultimate control comes from is cultures becoming savvy to the to to how technology in affects them. Yeah. Um. So, so you know, it, it 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 there will always be a sort of period when there's a new technology, um, that that it is easy to manipulate, um, humans using it. 
because you've you've kind of found a it's like you found a backdoor entry to people's yeah, yeah. minds. This is what social media does. This is what radio did. It's what TV did. But 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 like like everything, humans become we evolve as well. Technology evolves. We evolve, and we learn to we learn to to recognize when we're being manipulated. We learn to be you know children today don't deal with social we, we are, are are more I think more cynical and skeptical about um, what they're seeing on social media, and they sort of bake it into the way that they engage with it. I you know I I, I don't know whether that's the answer, but it seems yeah. to me. Like part of the like, it's kind of it to think of technologies as sort of static, um, that they they just they just pose the same danger always. I think is wrong. I think I think we learn we 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 grow with them. And and this is where, for example, if we look at AI, which has been in, a, in the news recently with you know Elon Musk and lots of technologists sort of asking OpenAI to sort of halt development for a short period of time. Um, there is there is again that tension, isn't there, between what safeguards and regulations do you put around something to make sure it's healthy for society versus making sure you don't have so much where it stifles innovation and with so many things that we're seeing and i think the pandemic was a good you know practical experiment of this society let's say where it's it's, it's again very difficult to balance over and under regulation and in the pandemic we saw that big distinction between public health and public order let's say and 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 safeguards on both but in your kind of experience and and seeing you know government work and seeing the law play out do you think there is ever a good way to make that balance between over and under regulation um i mean i i don't i don't think i can answer that question in the sort of broad in the broad sense um I think there's certain things I noticed during the pandemic, which are are yeah. quite important that we should be learning lessons from. Um, w- one thing that happened during the pandemic is that um, is that protest, outdoor protest, was was made a criminal offence. Yeah, um, and, and that is something that in a democracy should never happen, um, because because protest, you know, you could argue that the final safeguard of any democracy is is people's ability to yeah. to to take action, you know, as a as uh, to assemble. And express themselves. Um, that that is, you know, beyond the courts and parliament. That is ultimately where, if you look, what's happening in Israel at the moment, and uh, where there are protests, you know, hundreds of thousands of people protesting, not not once, but like every week. Um, and you know, you see that that there are when when red lines get yeah. crossed in societies, that the people come out. And I think if you, it, it, Matt Hancock says in his book that he didn't include an exception. Um, for protest, for public, pro- for outdoor protest, because uh, during the lockdowns, because he didn't want people protesting against the lockdowns, um, and, and what and what that that there's some quite serious implications for that because it suggests that two things. First of all, what we probably would all suspect, which is that governments would quite like people not to object, not be allowed to object to what they're doing. That's one, um, and that you can understand. But but the second thing that is much more worrying is that is that in an emergency situation, um, it's possible for governments to actually shut down dissent um, really successfully. You know, in 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 a in a developed democracy like the UK, um, yeah. it's not just it's not just theoretical. It actually happened. Um, it actually wasn't challenged in the courts. Although you know, I was involved in the in the case about the Sarah Everard vigil, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was successful. But that was against the Metropolitan Police, not against the government, and it was also retrospective. Um, and I think that 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 to me is like a should be a giant red siren that um, that the way that governments 
regulate societies is not always for the public good. It's for sometimes for their own good. And they might, obviously, they would see it as the public good. But I don't think from a democratic perspective, that is for the public yeah. good. Um, and so that kind of, I, I, I'm answering a slightly different question, but I think that that, no, but I th- you know, that, that to me yeah. is, 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 is a lesson about um, the sort of like, you know, we need to be protected from governments uh, as well as being protected from, from bad, from yeah. bad things that are happening in society. But does this, but the other thing which it really made me realize was the speed and number of laws that were enacted during the pandemic and the general lack of understanding amongst most people about how does law work it's it that was a big issue because you know you when you talk about thing, things like protests when you talk about the implications of leaving your house in a lockdown general misunderstandings of law by civil society notwithstanding general understandings of new laws by law enforcement you know i know in in your book you say that rather than knitting or baking sourdough your hobby was asking police officers what the law was. And and it strikes me that this is an area where technology could be really beneficial in making sure we have better public understanding of how laws are made, how they're enforced, how to interpret them, because it feels for the public to regain, regain trust in authority, the public needs to be much more educated about these processes. Yeah, I mean, and the police. You know the police. The police see themselves as members of the public as well, and ultimately, it was the police who were coming to me through the through the pandemic. And and yeah. and it's so many police officers have told me that they were relying on my Twitter feed to find out what the law was. Wow. Um, yeah. Which which is which is a really not not a good situation. I mean, it was an exceptional situation as well. You don't usually have two new laws every every week, yeah. which are being which aren't just kind of like you know laws esoteric, esoteric laws about particular things. They were. They were the laws the police had to enforce yeah. pretty much all you know all day every day. So I, I do think I mean like I I've, I've worked for you know over a decade trying to you know setting up various platforms to yeah um to help people digitally understand their rights and understand law. Um and I think there's a massive amount of work you could do for that. I think it's been a real like um one one of the problems with the past 12 years of government um it for me is that they've been really antagonistic towards um individual rights and 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 really you know the people's ability to um to claim their rights against public authorities it's been a very sort of like they've been very antagonistic towards human rights and and that sort of thing and and that's yeah that's for them that's a sort of political cultural type thing but the downside is that you know with with We've lost opportunities to go out and educate people about what their rights mm. are, you know, and and about really understand and be able to articulate, you know, when something like a pandemic happens and there's this there's this imp, imp, there's this this ask by the government to to people for people to lend their liberties, which is what the, this phrase I use, which I got from the the Second World War, which is what people yeah. were told in the Second World War: you will we want you to lend your liberties. But at that point, you need like you know. In the same way that it would have been really helpful to have a population that was um, scientifically, statistically literate, to be able to really mm-hmm. engage with what the hell was going on with with the you know the epidemiology uh, of COVID, I think you really it we really would benefit from having a population that can talk about things like um, and understand things like proportionality yeah. and and um, basic rights. Because the, the thing which I found really fascinating, so so out, outside sort of my NED life at Shoesmith, you know, I have an NGO, we work in 42 countries using, you know, doing peace building at the front line of, of, of conflict zones. And 
you know, in those parts of the world, people are having their human rights, you know, negatively affected on a day-to-day basis by authority, by other members of civil society. It's, you feel it and see it every single day. And it strikes me that the pandemic was probably the first time since World War II that the majority of UK citizens will have had a brush with their rights and liberties being being violated. And I worry that people didn't realize the seriousness of their rights being violated. Yeah, well, I, I think that's I think that's right. It, it's 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 this. We didn't really have the language, and the government didn't use the language of, of trade offs, you know, and and of, of balance, which is what human rights, you know, a number of 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 our human rights that are well protected, things like the right to privacy and family life, right to freedom of speech, are about balances. That's the way they're described and set up. And I think it's such a loss that we we didn't really and we didn't really talk in those terms because they would have been so much more useful to to understand that. I think it's a real shame that the COVID inquiry, you know, it, it's because of this sort of cultural thing about human rights, I think, it doesn't include human rights in its terms of reference. It's just yeah. really, really uh, um it's just a it's a miss. And I hope that they uh, that that they do that in a way which is yeah, um, I hope they actually go ahead with the inquiry in a way which is let's talk about human rights. Yeah, and, and in terms of that access to justice part of human rights as well, you know, even through the work we're doing with charities in the UK, we often see that the technological barriers now, in terms of interfacing with the law in that broad sense of it, mean that the individuals who genuinely need access to justice and access to the law are now being hampered, not because the legal framework doesn't exist, but because the technological hurdles are high to access legal support. Um, Is that something that you've seen in your human rights work? Is that something that you're concerned about? Or do you feel that technology is actually broadly opening access indeed? I don't think technology is particularly... Well, look, the, the the internet has been has been helpful to people because they can... There are some good and reliable resources where there are you know, things like Citizens Advice Bureau... Um, the 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 Crown Prosecution Service guidance on criminal offences is really useful. Yeah, there are, there are some really good, and, and look, you can you can also go to, you know, when I set up uh, the human rights blog, I think, whatever it was, twelve thirteen years ago, it was it was pretty amazing that you could you could write about law and link to primary sources like the actual laws themselves and case law, and people could go and do their own checking and 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 they could learn. And that's you know that is a massive difference compared to when legal writing all used to be in legal legal journals and the law was basically you had to go to a you know a library to find it. So I think yeah. that is a massive advance. And I think that the next major you know advance is coming shortly when we're going to have be able to ask artificial intelligence generators to to do legal work for us and to do legal research for us. I think that that may be a much bigger um, change than anything that's come before it in terms of access to access to the law. Yeah. One of the interesting points, and again, it, it's something which we actually saw, you know, not just through friends and colleagues and other businesses, was people misunderstanding what, what was a law versus what ought we to do when the government says this is guidance. Um, and I wonder whether there is more than a semantic difference between the two in terms of how we as individuals should interpret them. And and what you thought about how that was handled in terms of communication? 
I mean, it was a mess from the from the very start, and it and it was a and it was a mess that was obvious to everyone. I mean, not obvious to everyone, it was certainly obvious to me. You know, I, I was working with the Joint Committee on Human Rights for a year on their um, inquiry into COVID and human rights, the government and the government policies, and we wrote our first report in April 2020. So, you know, in the middle of the lockdown, and said there is a confusion between guidance and law, and we don't understand why. You know, I well, I, I tell the story in the in the book about how. In the first week of the first lockdown, I, I stopped some police officers um, on the beat, and I said, "You know, I wanted to know what they thought they were up to, just as a, as I was interested to know what they thought they were enforcing." And they said, "Well, we're enforcing the four rules." And I didn't really know. They, they said the prime minister's four rules, and I and I realised that that must be the, the the four things the prime minister said in, in his opening speech. Um, and he said, "All right, well, for example, you know, I've seen you on your bike now. If I see you later." Um, I'll give you a fixed penalty notice. Yeah, I said. I said why? He said, well, because you're only allowed to out for exercise once. And I said, well, that's not that's not correct in law. That was yes, the prime minister said that, but in law, you're allowed out. You know, it doesn't say you're you're only allowed out once. You're allowed out as many times as you want. He said, oh well, it'll have to be a test case, won't it? Um, yeah. And, and 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 I found that throughout the pandemic with the police, and I'm sure lots and lots of people got fixed penalty notices um, and even criminal convictions because of that confusion. Um, so I think, and 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 it, and you, I mean, you saw it this absurdity only last week when the prime minister, sorry, the ex prime minister, gave evidence at the privileges committee. Yeah. And it took this 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 because he'd said in his statements, he said all guidance was followed. And then he and then there was this talk about the rules, whatever that means, yeah. and I presume that meant the law. I mean, we're still, you know, worrying about it. And and in a, in a way, I, I never understood why the guidance was the guidance was always stricter than the law. Um, that was the weird thing. It was always stricter than the law. And I think in terms of from business's perspective, look, I mean, you don't there's there's no there's no legal reason to follow guidance. It's up to you to whether you follow guidance or not. Yeah. The prop the problem comes. When you think about things like insurance policies, you know, yes, it, 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 that was the problem for the big problem for um, businesses was, yes, fine, we can strictly not be breaking the law. But what if we then, um, you know, there's a massive COVID outbreak and we didn't follow guidance? You know, might we be um, done by the health and safe, safety executive? Might we, might we be yeah, not, not covered by our insurers? So there was that, that really wasn't. And then just to add into the mix, there were certain parts of the regulations which required you to follow the guidance. Yeah, yeah. Particularly around certain events, indoor events, you would have to follow the guidance. So it was it was a real mess, and I and I'm not um, envious at all about businesses having to figure out what to do. I, I I worry that the next domain that we will see more of this coming from is around climate and net zero, um, which can sometimes feel benign, but I feel that there could be a lot of enforcement of guidance which will really adversely impact small businesses in particular in terms of what they can and can't do and how um yeah it's it's pot i mean it's let's any area where there is this kind of um huge moral imperative for the government to act um and and if they if 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 they feel that the way they've got to act is to control the minutiae of people's yes. behavior um, they're gonna. It, it is inherently uh, unstable. Um, trying to do that, you cannot. You cannot use law or and or guidance to control the minutiae of people's behaviour. It's it's like. Um, I mean, I mean, look, you, you can. I mean, I'm. I you know, I I grew up in Orthodox Judaism, and in actual fact, yeah. that is a pretty good comparator. Where 
you know, it's a religion that tries to, uh, it's at the more, the, the, the more extreme ends, tries to control the immune shy people's behavior. And, and it is possible, but it is like, is not, is not compatible with a liberal, um, democratic, um, uh, society to try and do that. You can't, you can't both, uh, you know, give people the freedom to go about their lives and flourish um, within the boundaries of, of the law at the same time say, well, we're going to control when we, when, when you step out of the house, what time you are able yeah. to drive the car, you know, all that, all that sort of, it's, it's just, there's a tension between those two things. Not, you know, there's no, like, this is the line, obvious answer and every issue is different, but it is a huge tension. Wow. And as, as a roundup, you know, as a self-confessed fan of technology, as we discussed earlier, you know, there's so many things coming down the pipe, which are going to really impact business, which are going to really impact back to our, our, our lives. And I wonder when you look at all the different technologies that you're seeing coming down the pipe, you know, whether it's, you know, AR and VR, whether it's AI or all, all these different areas, what do you think, which, which of those domains or what technology do you think is going to really transform business in particular over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, I, if, I, I think the obvious answer is the right answer. I think it's got to be artificial intelligence that is going to, if I'm just thinking about law, what you can already do with these kind of really quite, you know, prototype AI chatbots is is extraordinary in terms of, you know, may, you know, write me a speech about this area of law, you know, analyze um, particular cases. You know, so much, so much of the grunt work of of law is going to be. Um, you, you're going to be able to do it through AI. You know, for example, just just in you know in a common law system where there are you know thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases you have to read in particular areas, um, to be able to synthesize um, the the learning that you can get out of those cases, it's so easy to miss stuff. It's so easy to run out of time. Um, it really will, I think, change the way we do things. Um, and, and and not just take away the grunt work. I think it will take away some of the substantive work as well, um, and yeah. and hopefully open up. You know, although you've got obviously reliability issues, open up the the arena to individuals who aren't lawyers to be able to craft an argument and an answer um, in an area. You know, if they're having a dispute with their landlord, for example, and they yeah. cannot afford to get legal advice, you know, obviously. There's, you wouldn't recommend them going to an AI chatbot because you'd say, oh, it's much more reliable to have a human. But, but in actual fact, they may not. Have, they, they, if it's the, if it's the option is not, is basically do their own, you know, uh, imperfect, you know, non-expert googling, versus saying to the chatbot, I'm having a dispute about mold with my landlord. What, what, what laws, what cases and yeah. should I, should I cite to them? Please write me a letter with a four-page letter saying how dreadful it is you know if if you an individual can do that it, it will be infinitely better than yeah. doing nothing yeah. um so I, I think that there's massive opportunities um big risks to lawyers um good risks like good i mean i mean i don't i, I think lawyers have a monopoly on on legal knowledge um they have a, they have a very profitable monopoly on it and i don't see why um that should continue Brilliant. No, I, th I think that's completely valid, and you know, I think I think it's going to be a very exciting time actually in terms of seeing seeing where this all progresses. But no, Adam, I just just wanted to thank you again um, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and you know, I have to say, I I too use your socials as as a source of advice, and did so through the pandemic. And you know, 
it's just incredible the work that you're doing because I think it's just it's just educating so many of us and helping us just understand what's really happening in the law. So thank you for the work you're doing and, and, and for your time today as well. Thanks so much, Vikasa. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Well, that went far too quickly. I could have chatted to Adam for another hour and even then, frankly, we would only have scratched the surface. Adam showed us how quickly change can happen and if we're not careful, how the safeguards which have been developed over the years can be discarded almost on a whim. Whatever we do in life, every generation has duty to fight for democracy. It's more precious than we realise. And there's no doubt that things like the rule of law can feel like a nebulous concept at times, particularly in the context of business, but it matters. The US National Intelligence Council notes that democracies and open societies within the rule of law find it easier to cultivate the right environment for technology and innovation. The United Nations remind us that the rule of law provides the basis for commercial certainty and creates the foundation for long-term investment and growth and also sustainable development for all of us. We ignore that rule and our laws at our peril. I was also surprised to learn that the health secretary had such difficulties signing off the new COVID regulations because his printer was broken. I mean, come on. So, on that cheery note, that's it for this edition of Business in a Digital Age. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any thoughts or feedback, do please get in touch. And if you are a lawyer or interested in the law or even studying the law, do check out our new book, Legal Practice in the Digital Age, written by my colleagues David Jackson, Tony Randall and Paul Caddy. It shows lawyers how they can embrace technological change, from taking people-centric approaches to technology and innovation, to entrenching forward-thinking new mindsets into their firm's DNA. It contains case studies and practical tips to give firms the edge they need to stay competitive, to make changes and to succeed in the future, rather than a lot of the scary, doom-mongering we see out there. This is actually a book of hope. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on the Shoesmiths website on podcast networks on spotify apple music amazon music or however you consume your podcast thanks so much for listening today and we hope to see you again soon